Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two by John Bagnall Bury. Section 2. Policy of Thebes in Southern Greece, Arcadia, and Messenia. The defeat of a Lacedaemonian army in the open field by an enemy inferior in numbers was a thrilling shock to the Greeks, who deemed it part of the order of nature that the Spartan hoplites should be invincible except in front of an overwhelmingly larger force. The event was made more impressive by the death of King Cleombrotus, a Spartan king had never fallen in battle since Leonidas laid down his life at the gates of Greece. The news agitated every state in the Peloponnesus. The Harmosts, whom Sparta had undertaken to withdraw three weeks before, when she signed the peace, were now expelled from the cities. There was a universal reaction against the local oligarchies which had been supported by Sparta, and had excited universal discontent and these democratic revolutions flooded the land with troops of dangerous exiles. The contagion spread even to Argos, though Sparta had no influence there, and broke out with such violence that many citizens were cuddled to death by the infuriated people. But it was in Arcadia that the most weighty political results followed. A general feeling, which had perhaps been growing for some years back, now took definite shape that the cities of Arcadia must combine together to oppose a united front to the Lacedaemonian pretensions. The only way in which each city could hope to preserve her independence against the power of Sparta was by voluntarily surrendering a portion of that independence to a federal union of her sister cities. The most zealous advocates of the pan-Arcadian idea was the Mantinean Lycomedes, a native of the district which had been more cruelly used than all others by the high-handed policy of Lacedaemon. The fall of Sparta was the signal for the Mantineans to rebuild their walls, desert their villages, and resume the dignity and pleasures of city life. The old king Agesilaus had the insolence to remonstrate. He requested them at least to ask the gracious permission of Sparta, but he had no power to enforce his request. The Mantineans resolved that their city should not again be captured, as King Agesipolis had captured it, by means of its own river. They dug a new bed, so that the office, when it approached the southeastern wall, parted into two channels, and having described a great loop, reunited its waters on the northwestern side. In this loop the city of Mantinea rose again, and by this means the river, which had proved itself a danger, was forced to become a fortification, entirely encompassing the walls. The stone foundations of the wall enable us to trace the circuit of the city, but they were only the base for a superstructure which, like the buildings of the town, was of brick. The ten gates were curiously constructed, no two alike, yet all elaborations of a principle which was adopted by the builders of the fortress of Tiryns, the principle of exposing the undefended right side of an approaching enemy to the defenders who manned the walls and flanking towers. The general design may be best grasped by conceiving the wall not as a continuous circle, but as composed of ten separate pieces, which did not join but overlapped, while the gates connected the overlapping ends. Mantinea, arisen from her ruins and the other towns of Arcadia, 
with the important exceptions of Tegea, Orchomenus, and Heria, now agreed to form a Pan-Arcadian Union and constitute a federal state. Several reasons made it expedient to establish a new seat as the federal capital of the country. The Arcadian cities were too small for the purpose. The selection of one of them would have excited the jealousies of the others, and it was intended that there should be no Thebes in the Arcadian state. The site chosen for the new city was in the western of the two large plains which defined the geographical character of central Arcadia. It lay, in a long, narrow, irregular shape, on both sides of the river Hellison. Not far off rose Lycaon, the mountain to which the Arcadian folk attached their most sacred associations, and in the centre of the market-place was built a shrine of Zeus, of that holy hill. The town was entitled to its name of Megalopolis, or Great City, by the large circuit of its double wall, a circuit of five miles and a half, a somewhat rough piece of work, built of stone in the lower courses and brick above, and furnished with towers at intervals. It must be kept in view that Megalopolis had a double character. It was to be the federal capital, but it was also to be one of the federal cities. Apart from its relation to all Arcadia, it had a special relation to its own plain. The change which had come to pass in the eastern plain, so long ago that no man could tell when, by the founding of Tegea and Mantinea, was now brought to pass in the western plain. The village communities of the surrounding districts were induced to exchange their separate existence for a joint life in the city. Lying close to the north-western frontier of Laconia, Megalopolis would be a bulwark against Sparta on this side, corresponding to Tegea on the north. It is natural to compare it with Mantinea, which arose in its new shape at the same time. Both cities seem to have had a similar system of fortification, double walls of stone and brick strengthened by towers. But Megalopolis, which was the larger, was also the stronger by nature. For Mantinea lay on a dead level. All its strength was due to art. Megalopolis lay on sloping irregular ground, offering hills of which the architect could take advantage. The difference is illustrated by the fact that the little theatre in Mantinea rested on a stone substructure, while the huge theatre in Megalopolis is cut out of a hill. The federal constitution was modelled on the ordinary type of democratic constitutions. There was an assembly which met at stated periods to consider all important questions. Every citizen of the federal communities was a member of this assembly, of which the official title was the Ten Thousand. The name indicates an approximate, not an exact number, like the 5,000 in the constitution of Theramenes at Athens. We have no information as to the working of this body, but from the analogy of other ancient federations it is probable that the votes were taken by cities, the vote of each city being determined by the majority of the votes of those of its citizens who were present. The 10,000 made war and peace, concluded alliances, and sat in judgment on offenders against the League. There was also a council, composed of fifty members from the various cities, and this body had doubtless the usual executive and deliberative functions which belonged to the Greek conception of a council. On the south side of the river stood the Thersilian, the federal building in which meetings of the Arcadian League were held. The foundations of this spacious covered hall have been recently laid bare, and display an ingenious arrangement of the internal pillars converging in lines whereby as few as possible of a crowded audience might be hindered from seeing and hearing. It is an attempt to apply the principle of the theatre to a covered building. 
The Thessalians stood close in front of the hill from which the theatre was hewn, and the place of political deliberation seemed part of the same structure as the place of dramatic spectacles. For the Doric portico, which adorned the southern side of the federal house, faced the audience. The orchestra in which the chorus danced and the actors sometimes played stretched from the circle of seats up to the steps of the portico. Such was the original arrangement, changed in later years, and it illustrates the fact that the stone theatres which began to spring up throughout Greece in the 4th century were intended as much for political assemblies as for theatrical representations. The river Hellison divides Megalopolis into two nearly equal parts, and it would seem that this division corresponded to the double character of the place. The city of Megalopolis, in the strict sense, was on the northern side. There was the market-place on the bank of the river, there was the hall in which the council of the megalopolitan state met together but the southern half of megalopolis was federal ground here was the federal hall of assembly here was the theatre which was in fact an open-air hall for federal meetings here we may suppose were the dwellings of the permanent armed force five thousand strong which was maintained by the federation here were the lodgings for the ten thousand when they assembled to vote on the affairs of the arcadian state Tegea had hitherto been a sort of Laconian outpost, and a revolution was necessary to bring about its adhesion to the new federation. With the help of a Mantinean band, the Philo-Laconian party was overthrown, and 800 exiles sought refuge at Sparta. This blow stung Sparta to action. She might brook the resuscitation of Mantinea, she might look on patiently at the measures taken by the presumptuous Arcadians for managing their own affairs, but it was too much to see Tegea, her steadfast ally, the strong warder of her northern frontier, pass over to the camp of the rebels. Agesilaus led an army into Arcadia, and displayed the resentment of Sparta by ravaging the fields of Mantinea. Neither he nor the federal forces risked a conflict. In view of this Spartan invasion, which came to so little, the Arcadians had sought the help of foreign powers. To Athens their first appeal was made. The tidings of Leuctra had excited in the city mixed feelings of pleasure and jealousy. The humiliation of Sparta opened up a prospect of regaining empire, notwithstanding the undertakings of the recent peace, but the triumph of Thebes was unwelcome and dangerous. These hopes and fears spurred Athens to new activity. Shortly after the Battle of Leuctra she showed her appreciation of the changed condition of Hellas by inviting delegates from the Peloponnesian cities to pledge themselves anew to the king's peace which, it must always be remembered, was the basis of the peace of Callias, and to pledge themselves to one another for mutual help in case of hostile attack. Elis, refusing to recognize the autonomy of some of her subjects, was forced to hold aloof, but most of the other states swore to the alliance. It was a contract between Athens and her allies on one side, and the former allies of Sparta on the other. By virtue of this act of alliance, Athens was bound to help Mantinea and the Arcadian cities whenever they were threatened by an invasion. But it appeared that, though ready to usurp the place of Sparta, she was not ready to renew the war with her old rival. Perhaps a change of feeling had been wrought in the course of the nine or ten months which had run since the Congress at Athens. The violence of the democratic movements in the Peloponnese may have caused disgust. Certain it is that Athens refused the Arcadian appeal she seems to have contemplated a policy of neutrality. 
The rebuff at Athens drove Arcadia into the arms of Thebes. The battle which had been fought to secure the unity of Boeotia had been the means of promoting the unity of Arcadia, and there was a certain fitness in the northern state coming to the aid of its younger fellow. But it was not mere sympathy with federal institutions that induced Thebes to send a Boeotian army into the Peloponnesus. To keep Sparta down and prevent her from recovering her influence was the concern of Thebes, and an united Arcadia was the best instrument that could be devised for the purpose. At this juncture, the situation in northern Greece permitted Thebes to comply with the Arcadian request. The Phocians and Ozolian Locrians, the Locrians of Opus, the Malians, had sought her alliance after Leuctra, and even the Eubians had deserted her, so that all central Greece, as far as Scytheron, was under the Boeotian influence. But if the request had come some months sooner, it would have been impossible to grant it, for Jason of Ferrae was then alive, preparing to march to Delphi, and the Boeotian forces could not have left Boeotia. It was already winter when the Theban army, led by Epaminondas, accompanied by his fellow Boetarchs, arrived in Arcadia to find that Agesilaus had withdrawn from the field. But although the purpose of the expedition was thus accomplished, the Arcadians persuaded Epaminondas not to return home without striking a blow at the enemy. To invade Laconia and attack Sparta herself was the daring proposal, daring in idea at least, for within the memory of history no foeman had ever violated Laconian soil. The unwalled city had never repelled an assault. There was little danger with an army of such size as that which was now assembled, and a march to the gates of Sparta would drive home the lesson of Leuctra. The invaders advanced in four divisions by four roads, converging on Silasia, and met no serious attempt to block their way. Some Neodemodes and Tegeat exiles were annihilated by the Arcadians. Silasia was burnt, and the united army descended into the plain on the left bank of the Eurotus. The river which separated them from Sparta was swollen with winter rains, and this probably saved the city, for the bridge was too strongly guarded to be safely attacked. Epaminondas marched southwards a few miles further, as far as Amiclae, where he crossed the stream by a ford, but Sparta was now saved. On the first alarm of the coming invasion, messages had flown to the Peloponnesian cities which were still friendly, and these, Corinth, Sicyon, Phlius, Pellini, and the towns of the Argolic coast, had promptly sent auxiliary forces. The northern roads being barred by the enemy, these forces were obliged to land on the eastern shore of Laconia and make their way across Mount Parnon. They reached the Eurotas Bridge after the invaders had moved to Amiclae, and their coming added such strength to the defence of Sparta that Epaminondas did not attack it, but contented himself with marching up defiantly to its outskirts. It was indeed a sufficient revenge even for Theban hatred to have wounded Sparta as none had wounded her before, to have violated the precinct of the Laconian land. The consternation of the Spartans at a calamity which, owing to the immunity of ages, they had never even conceived as possible, can hardly be imagined. The women, disciplined though they were in repressing their feelings when sons or husbands perished in battle, now fell into fits of distress and despair. For unlike the women of so many other Greek cities, they had never looked upon the face of an enemy before. Old Agesilaus, who loathed the Theban above all other names, was charged with the defence, and his task was the harder, since he had to watch not only the foe, but the disaffected. 
freedom had been promised to six thousand helots who came forward to serve. But this aid was a new danger. It is needless to say that the loss of a few hundred soldiers on the field of Leuctra had nothing to do with the impotence displayed by Sparta at this crisis, and if Leuctra had been won by superior generalship, it was not inferior generalship that exposed Laconia. The disease lay far deeper. The vigour of Sparta was decaying from the mere want of men. It has been calculated that at this time there were not more than 1,500 with full citizenship not merely constant warfare but far more economical conditions brought about this dispeopling since money had begun to flow into laconia and since a new law permitted citizens to alienate their holdings the inevitable result ensued the small lots which meagerly supported each spartan were gathered into large estates and with the lots the citizens disappeared this disease which was sapping the energies of his enemy cannot have escaped the view of epaminondas and his next step is significant. Having ravaged southern Laconia, from the banks of the Eurotas to the foot of Tegetus, as far as Githaeon, where they failed, we know not why, to take the arsenal, the allies returned to Arcadia. But though it was midwinter, their work was not over yet. A far greater blow was still to be inflicted on Sparta. Epaminondas led them now into another part of the Spartan territory, the ancient Messenia, the serfs, who belonged to the old Messenian race, arose at their coming, and on the slopes of Mount Ithome the foundations of a new Messene were laid by Epaminondas. The ancient heroes and heroines of the race were invited to return to the restored nation. The ample circuit of the town was marked out, and the first stones placed to the sound of flutes. Ithome was the citadel, and formed one side of the town, whose walls of well-wrought masonry descended the slopes and met in the plain below. The Messenian exiles who had been wandering over the Greek world had now a home once more. Messene, like Megalopolis, was founded by Sinoicizing the districts round about, but its political position was entirely different from that of Megalopolis. Messene was not a federal capital, it was the Messenian state, a city with the whole country for its territory. Coroni and Methoni were not cities like Mantinea and Clitor. They were places like Baron and Marathon. Their inhabitants possessed the citizenship of Messene, but it was only under Mount Ithome that they could exercise their burgher rights. The relation of Messene to Messenia was that of Athens to Attica, not that of Megalopolis to Arcadia. Thus not only a new stronghold but a new enemy was erected against Sparta in Sparta's own domain. All western Laconia all the land between Ithome and the sea, except Asine and Siparissa, were subtracted from the Spartan dominion. All the Perioeci and Helots became the freemen of a hostile state. Under the auspices of Thebes an old act of injustice was undone, and the principle of autonomy was strikingly affirmed. But besides the glory which Thebes won by so popular an act, besides the direct injury inflicted on Sparta and the establishment of a hostile fort, the policy of Epaminondas was calculated to produce a result of greater importance. The loss of Messenia would accelerate that process of decline in the Spartan state which had already advanced so far. The fewer the lots, the fewer the citizens, according to the indissoluble connection between land and burgher rights on the Lycurgian system. It was high time for Sparta to reform her constitution. The Arcadians celebrated this memorable invasion of Laconia by dedicating with part of the spoil a group of statues to the Delphian god. 
the verses of dedication signified that the indigenous people from sacred arcadia having laid lacedaemon waste set up the monument as a witness to future generations the statues are gone but the verses on their stone have come to light in our own day in the meantime sparta had begged aid from athens and athens had decided to depart from her position of neutrality a vote was passed strongly supported by the orator Callistratus, to send the entire force of the city under iphicrates to assist sparta this was evidently the most politic course for athens to adopt sparta was a necessary makeweight against thebes nor is it doubtful that notwithstanding all their rivalries no such antipathy parted athens from sparta as that which existed between the two states and thebes iphicrates marched to the isthmus and occupied Corinth and Senthorai, thus commanding the line of Mount Oneon. His object, it must be clearly understood, was not to prevent the enemy from leaving the Peloponnesus, but to protect the rear of his own army marching into a hostile country. He advanced into Arcadia, but found that the Thebans and their allies had left Laconia, and Sparta was no longer a danger. He therefore drew back to Corinth, and harassed the Boeotian army on its return march, without attempting to bar its passage, for the object of the Athenian expedition was simply to rescue Sparta, not, except so far as Sparta's peril might demand, to fight with the Thebans. But the hasty vote to march to the rescue was soon followed by a deliberate treaty of alliance, and Athens definitely ranged herself with Sparta against Boeotia and Arcadia. She was already meditating schemes of expanding her empire, she was nourishing the hope of recovering the most precious of all her former imperial possessions, the Thracian Amphipolis. With such designs it was impossible to remain neutral, and as we shall see, there was some danger of a collision with Thebes in Macedonia. Fighting went on in the Peloponnese between the Arcadians and the allies of Sparta, and a few months later Epaminondas, who had been re-elected Boetarch in his absence at the beginning of the year, appeared again at the head of the Boeotian army. The Spartans and Athenians had occupied the line of Mount Oneon. This time the object was to keep out the Thebans. But Epaminondas broke through their lines, joined his allies, won over Sicyon and Pellini, and failed to win Phlius. A new succour for Sparta arrived at this moment from overseas. Twenty ships bearing two thousand Celtic and Iberian mercenaries came from her old ally, the tyrant of Syracuse, to whom she had once sent aid in her hour of peril, and who had more than once sent succour to her. Their coming seems to have decided Epaminondas to return home, though he had accomplished but little, and his political opponent Menaclidas took advantage of the general disappointment to indict him for treason. The result was that, that Epaminondas was not re-elected Boetarch for the following year. To establish her supremacy, Thebes was adopting the same policy as Sparta. She placed a harmost in Sicyon, as the Boeotian cities had formerly been garrisoned by Sparta, the Peloponnesian cities were now to be garrisoned by Thebes. Messenia and Arcadia were to be autonomous, but the Thebans desired to be regarded as both the authors and preservers of that autonomy. As a mistress, Distant Thebes might be more tolerable than neighbouring Lacedaemon, but the free federation of Arcadia determined to be free in very deed. Sparta was now sunk so low that the Arcadians, with friendly Messini on one side and friendly Argos on the other, could hope to maintain their liberty with their own swords, without foreign aid. Their leading spirit, Lycomedes, animated them to this resolve of independence and self-reliance. 
you are the only indigenous natives of the Peloponnesus, and you are the most numerous and hardiest nation in Greece. Your valour is proved by the fact that you have been always in the greatest request as allies. Give up following the lead of others. You made Sparta by following her lead, and now if you follow the lead of Thebes, without yourselves leading in turn, she will prove perhaps a second Sparta. In this mood the Arcadians displayed a surprising activity and achieved a series of successes. The two important cities, Heria in the west and Orchomenus in the north, which had hitherto stood aloof, were forced to join the league, which now became, in the fullest sense, Pan-Arcadian. Some of the northern villages of Laconia were annexed, and the Trifilian towns sought in the league a support against the hated domination of Elis. The federal forces were active in the opposite quarters of Argolis and Messenia. Against all this activity, Sparta felt herself helpless. But a second armament of auxiliaries arrived from her friend, the tyrant of Syracuse, and thus reinforced she ventured to take the field, and marched into the plain of Megalopolis. But the expedition was suddenly interrupted. Time had been wasted, and the Syracusan force, in accordance with its orders, was obliged to return to Sicily. Its way lay through Laconia, in order to take ship at Githaon, and the enemy tried to cut it off in the mountain defiles. The Spartan commander Archidamus, who was in the rear, hastened to the rescue, and dispersed the Arcadians with great loss. Not a single Lacedaemonian was killed, and the victory was called the tearless battle. The joy displayed in Sparta over this slight success showed how low Sparta had fallen. It may be thought that Dionysius might have kept his troops at home, if they were charged to return before they had well time to begin to fight. But the truth is that these troops were for some months inactive in Greece, while an attempt was being made to bring about a general peace. The initiative came from Ariobarzanes, the Persian satrap of Phrygia, who sent to Greece an agent well furnished with money, and this move on the part of Persia was probably suggested by Athens. The Syracusan sovereigns also intervened in the interests of peace, and the stone remains on which the Athenians thanked Dionysius and his sons for being good men in regard to the people of the Athenians and their allies, and helping the king's peace. Thus the king's peace was the basis of the negotiations of the congress which met at Delphi. Both Athens, which was doubtless the prime mover, and Sparta were most anxious for peace, but each had an ultimate condition from which she would not retreat. Sparta's very life seemed to demand the recovery of Messenia, and Athens had set her heart on Amphipolis. But neither condition would be admitted by Thebes, and consequently the negotiations fell through. They led, however, to independent negotiations of various states with Persia, each seeking to win from the king a recognition of its own claims. Pelopidas went up to Susa on behalf of Thebes to obtain a royal confirmation of the independence of Messenia. The Athenians sent envoys to convince the king of their rights to Amphipolis. Arcadia, Elis, and Algos were also represented. Pelopidas was entirely successful. The king issued an order to Greece, embodying the wishes of Thebes, Messenia, and Amphipolis to be independent, the Athenians to recall their warships. The question of Trophilia, whether it was to be dependent on Elis or a part of Arcadia, was decided in favour of Elis. This decision in a matter of absolute indifference to Persia was clearly due to Pelopidas, and indicates strained relations between Thebes and Arcadia. Pelopidas returned with the royal letter, but it found no acceptance in Greece, either at the Congress of Allies which was convoked at Thebes, 
or when the document was afterwards sent round to the cities. Arcadia would not abandon Trephilia, and Lycomedes formally protested against the headship of Thebes. The answer of Thebes to this defiance of her will was an invasion of the Peloponnesus. The line of Mount Oneon was still defended, but negligently, and Epaminondas passed it with Argive help. His object was not to depress Sparta further, for Sparta was now too feeble to be formidable, but to check the pretensions of Arcadia, and this could only be done through strengthening Theban influence in the Peloponnesus by winning new allies. Accordingly, Epaminondas advanced to Achaea, and easily gained the adhesion of the Achaean cities. But the gain of Achaea was soon followed by its loss. Counter to the moderate policy of Epaminondas, the Thebans had insisted in overthrowing the oligarchal constitutions and banishing the oligarchal leaders. These exiles from the various cities banded together and recovered each city successively, overthrowing the democracies and expelling the Harmosts. Henceforward, Achaea was an ardent partisan of Sparta. The unsettled state of the Peloponnesus was conspicuously shown by the events which happened at Sicyon. When the Theban Harmost was installed in the Acropolis, the oligarchy had been spared. But soon afterwards one of the chief citizens, named Euphron, brought about the establishment of a democracy, and then, procuring his own election as general, organizing a mercenary force, and surrounding himself with a bodyguard, the usual and notorious steps of a despot's progress, made himself master of the city and harbour. The Arcadians had helped Euphron in his first designs, but the intrigues of his opponents were so skilful that Arcadia again intervened and restored to Sicyon the exiles whom the tyrant had driven out. Euphron fled from the city to the harbour, which he surrendered to the Lacedaemonians, but the Lacedaemonians failed to hold it. Sicyon, however, was not yet delivered from her tyrant. He was restored by the help of Athenian mercenaries. Afterwards, seeing that he could not maintain himself without the support of Boeotia, he visited Thebes and was slain on the Cadmea in front of the Hall of Council, by two Sicyonian exiles who had dogged him. His assassins were tried and acquitted at Thebes, but at Sicyon his memory was cherished and he was worshipped as a second founder of the city. The fact shows that under the rule of Euphron the masses of the people were happier than under the political opponents whom he had so mercilessly treated his son succeeded to his power. The expedition of Epaminondas was attended with results which were in the end injurious to Thebes. The relations with Arcadia became more and more strained. But in the same year, Oropus was wrested from Athens and occupied by a Theban force. The Athenians were unable to cope alone with Thebes. They called on their allies, but none moved to their aid. The moment was seized by Arcadia. Lycomedes visited Athens and induced the Athenians, smarting with resentment against their allies, to conclude an alliance with the League. Thus Athens was now in a position of being an ally of both Arcadia and Sparta, which were at war with each other, and Arcadia was the ally of Athens and Thebes, which were also at war with each other. The visit of Lycomedes incidentally led to a disaster for Arcadia which outweighed the benefit of alliance. The ambassador on his way back was slain by some exiles into whose hands he fell, and the League lost its ablest statesmen. This change in the mutual relations among the Greek states, brought about by the seizure of Oropus, was followed by another change, brought about by an Athenian plot to seize Corinth. The object was to secure permanent control over the passage into the Peloponnesus, but the plot was discovered and foiled by the Corinthians, 
who then politely dismissed the Athenian soldiers stationed at various posts in the Corinthian territory. But by herself, Corinth would have been unable to resist the combined pressure of Thebes on one side and Argos on the other, and as Sparta could not help her, she was driven to make peace with Thebes. She was joined by her neighbour Phlius and by the cities of the Argolic coast. All these states formally recognised the independence of Messene, but did not enter into any alliance with Thebes or give any pledge to obey her leadership. They became, in fact, neutral. It was a blow to Sparta, who still refused to accept a peace on any terms save the restoration of Messenia. The Messenian question gave political speculators at Athens a subject for meditation. Was the demand of Sparta just? The publicist Isocrates argued the case for Sparta in a speech which he put in the mouth of King Archidamus. Another orator, Alcidamus, vindicated in reply the liberty of the Messenians and declared a principle which was far in advance of his time. God has left all men free. Nature has made no man a slave. If we survey the political relations of southern Hellas at this epoch, we see Thebes, supported by Argos, still at war with Sparta, who is supported by Athens. Achaea actively siding with Sparta, Elis hostile to Arcadia, the Arcadian League at war with Sparta, in alliance with Athens, in alliance with, but cool towards, Thebes, and already, having lost its leader Lycomedes, beginning to fall into disunion with itself. The peace with Corinth and others of the belligerent states marks the time at which Peloponnesian affairs cease to occupy the chief place in the councils of Thebes, and her most anxious attention turns to a different quarter. For Sparta is disabled and the mistress of Boeotia recognises that it is with Athens that the strife for headship will now be. While events were progressing in the Peloponnesus, as we have seen, Athens was busily engaged in other parts of the world with a view to restoring her maritime empire, and we have now to see how she succeeded, and how Thebes likewise was pushing her own supremacy in the north. End of chapter 14, part 2